Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite clubs nationally, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linky. This is Dean Linky, host of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast with a special holiday edition. And of course, on the holidays, we're all hoping for a special little gift. Well, I think we have one today as he introduces himself as this week's guest. Hey, this is Alexi Lawless from Fox Sports, and you are listening to Breaking the Lines with the great Dean Linky the ECNL podcast edition. You heard it right. The gift of Alexi Lalas on this week's Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a true soccer icon. He was part of two World Cup teams, two Olympic teams. He won an MLS Cup, a Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup, a CONCACAF Champions Cup. He played over in Italy, and now he is a media darling for Fox Sports, and he's not done with his holiday wishes. On behalf of everybody at ECNL, this is Alexi Lalas. Happy holidays! Ho, ho, ho! Ho, 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 indeed. We've got Alexi Lalas, a true American soccer icon, on this week's Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, after this message from the EC. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country. With a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean. This is Breaking the Line, the East and Out podcast. And as I just said in the open, I had the great honor of working with Alexi Lalas as the press officer for the 92 Olympic team and the press officer for the 1994 U.S. World Cup team, where we saw Alexi Lalas become a soccer icon. He still is a soccer icon. You're talking about a guy who made two World Cup rosters, two Olympic rosters. He won an MLS Cup. He won a Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup. He won a CONCACAF Champions Cup. He's a winner. He's in the National Soccer Hall of Fame. And now everybody knows him as one of the best analysts in the game for Fox Sports, the great Alexi Lalas. Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Wow, that was an incredible introduction. You read it perfectly just the way I wrote it. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. It's so easy introing you, Alexi, because you made my life so easy in the time we spent together. And because this is the holiday edition, let's start with that. What is a great memory for you of Christmas, uh, maybe as a youngster or maybe even as a dad? Well, uh, when I was young, I mean, obviously, it's the anticipation of what you're going to get. And, um, you know, you have that one thing I was always in, and have always been into music. So, you know, from a musical perspective, getting a guitar, uh, you know, that that made all the difference and changed my life. Um, so those types of things were always, always very, very cool. And, you know, now as a, now as a father, it's, it's not just about the presence, it's about, 
you know, everything that you talk about, it's hanging out with family and it's, uh, you know, seeing their faces and also, you know, a time to reflect and a time to celebrate and a time to uh, look back on uh, on the year. Uh, we've certainly lived some interesting years over the last couple of years. And, and while there's plenty of stuff that we can look back and shake our heads or scratch our heads at uh, at times, there's also a lot of good stuff. You know, I know it, it, the tendency is in this moment to to look at all the bad and look at all the, the, the challenges that we have had. And there are plenty of them, believe me. Uh, but there's also a lot of good stuff individually and collectively looking back on 2021. And I'm not just talking about the soccer field. Uh, I'm actually talking about off the soccer field. And, uh, and that needs to be celebrated. And I think it needs to be appreciated at a time like this. Well, you mentioned appreciation. One of the things I like about this podcast now being a year old, it, and it broadcasts every two weeks, Alexi Lalas, is we're now connecting people like you with the future of the game. And I, I want people to remember the greats. And look, you're not that old, but you know some people see you on Fox, but they don't realize how great you were. So let's remind everybody a little bit about you. So first of all, tell us how you pronounce your name, not Alexi Lalas, your real name. Let's start there. So so my name is Alexi Lalas. Um, I use Alexi and I have since I was a kid, uh, much more out of necessity and survival. So I grew up in Detroit. I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to be a, a redhead. It's another thing to be a redhead and to go by the name Panayotis, uh, which is my, my true uh, legal name. And uh, my father's Greek. My mom's from Jersey, and this is what happens when you put those two together. Uh, but, you know, I need all the help I can get. And so running around, like I said, in the suburbs of Detroit in, uh, in elementary school with Panayotis was just not going to work uh, at, at that point. And Alexi was a lot easier. It was identifiable. Um, but I guess if you look at it, it's actually my stage name because my middle name's Alexander. So Alexi actually doesn't even come into play. I, I suppose I could change it at this point, but everybody knows me as Alexi and it just was a, a little bit easier than, uh, you know, for, uh, like I said, uh, uh, suburban Midwest folks to be uh, pronouncing Panayotis. Yeah, suburban Detroit. So this is the ECNL podcast. Obviously, we're talking about youth soccer. So it's great to have you on. But how about telling us about you as a youngster? Because people don't realize as good as you were at soccer, you were a darn good hockey player, too. Talk about playing both sports. Well, I mean, it's the law in Michigan uh, <laughs> that you have to play hockey. And I'll be honest with you, there were times growing up where I was playing more hockey than soccer. And, uh, you know, I started out like a lot of us do where uh, you know, I was, you know, down to the frozen lakes and the ponds. And then, you know, we would freeze backyards and uh, driveways and do all that kind of stuff. And that's really where you learn that proverbial sandlot type of uh, upbringing when it came when it came to hockey. But, you know, in a couple of weeks where it was actually warmer, you go outside, I needed something else to do. And like I said, my, my father's Greek. And so when I was very young, we were going back and forth between Athens, Athens Greece and Detroit, Michigan. And obviously, I, I did have that sandlot type of existence when I was in Athens. And, you know, I talked about, you know, being in Detroit and you know not wanting to be called Panayotis and being called Alexi, but I was also kind of a fish out of water when I was in Athens growing up because I was this, you know, redhead American kid and I would go down to the corner in Athens and my mom would kick me out the door and I would go down to the corner and I would sit there and I would wait and watch the neighborhood kids as they played on this vacant abandoned uh, dirt lot and 
uh, you know, I would just sit there and eventually after a couple of weeks, they got desperate and the kid didn't show up or whatever. And so they invited me in, of course, in goal. So I started in goal. Then a couple of weeks later, somebody else isn't there. And they finally said, all right, let the American kid go run around. And, you know, that was kind of the, uh, the progression, but it introduced me to a sport at a young age and in a very informal type of way that I fell in love with. And then I came back to the United States and I did everything that probably a lot of your listeners and followers uh, do. I mean, I'm 51 years old right now but I'm still a product of the American soccer system. And so it's mom and dad coaching, it's orange peels and juice boxes at halftime, it's travel teams, it's all those different things. Now, obviously the, the, the landscape has changed dramatically since then, but still it was a way for me to, to socialize. It was a way for me to express myself. It was a really unique sport relative to all the other traditional American sports that I really gravitated to. Uh, and I think a lot of people do in that, you know, yes, we, we, we look at it from a domestic perspective, but this is, it always, it always amazed me and really excited me that I could go out on my, my sidewalk in front of my house in suburban Michigan, uh, in, in Detroit, and start juggling the ball. And there was a boy or girl on the other side of the world that was doing the exact same thing. We might have very little in common, but this was this thread between us and these two, uh, these two very different types of cultures and countries maybe that we were coming from, but that soccer, that binded us together. And I always thought that was really, really cool and, it's, and, in, and incredibly unique relative to a lot of the other sports that I was playing or that I, that I was growing up with in the U.S. I love that tie-in to you also playing in Greece as well as playing outside of Detroit. So you're playing both sports, as you talked about. You're right, in Michigan, you got to play hockey. When did you know that you're going to go play in college and the focus is going to be soccer? Or did you also play hockey in college, Alexi? Remind me of that. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I did play hockey in college uh, at Rutgers University, but I, I had gone there uh, mostly because of the soccer program that was at Rutgers University. And I, you know, when I was in high school, Obviously, I was I was getting better. I was getting more attention. Um, and I really, like I said, I gravitated to the sport for a number of different reasons. You know, I mentioned the international international aspect of it, which was really kind of cool to me. But also, I the people that were involved in soccer were very different than the people who were involved with hockey. And like I said, I played a lot of hockey. I was playing all through high school. I looked at hockey in terms of of, of going on and playing in college. But something really spoke to me about the game. I think a lot of it is the the freedom, the lack of stoppages, um, the the ownership that you take on the field. And I'm not saying that coaches aren't important, but maybe more so than any sport out there. Once that whistle blows, you're left up to your own devices. And I loved that that responsibility that you were given as a soccer player to go out there and figure out what needed to be done. And it, like I said, it doesn't mean that you don't have direction. It doesn't mean you don't have good coaching. But, uh, you know, I I I that unique aspect of the game was something that really attracted me to it. Your coach at Rutgers was Bob Riasso. What did he mean to your development? So, you know, I think about kids today when they, they grow up and the landscape and the, the environment that they are growing up and with all the incredible resources and they can watch professional soccer, they can go to soccer specific stadiums and they got incredible facilities and coaching. And, you know, I had, adequate coaching growing up in, in, uh, in terms of high school. Um, when I got to college and I got to Rutgers University, uh, Rutgers University is the state school of New Jersey. Uh, it, it was a hotbed and Rutgers, uh, uh, New Jersey in that area and that metropolitan area is still a hotbed. And so there was, it was a huge step up in terms of competition and I excelled in it. I, I, I recognized that I needed that. But it was also a huge step up in terms of the coaching uh, from Bob Riasso. And I started to think about the game in a different way. And I started to think about 
things that I was doing naturally, why I was doing them, and to you know evolve and mature a little bit more into understanding that it's not just always about speed. It's not just always about brute force. Um, it's not just always about doing things as quickly as possible, about pacing and about rhythm and about even when you not, don't have the ball, how you approach somebody and how you get to make others, and especially in a defensive sense, make other, other players and other teams do what you want by the tactical decisions that you make, either in the moment or ahead of time. Last question in this first segment. Your team was good. I'm pretty sure you made it to the national championship game, right? You took yeah. on UCLA, which was loaded with future teammates of yours that you probably had experienced time with on maybe the youth teams as well. I'm not totally sure, Alexi, but what do you remember about making it to that college cup and playing against all these guys that you would end up then playing on the Olympics and the World Cup team with? Yeah, so, you know, like I said, growing up in, in Detroit and, you know, doing well as a soccer player, but I still wasn't heavily recruited. As a matter of fact, I didn't get in any place. The only place that I got into was Rutgers. And so it was the only thing I had going. And I said, yeah. And they said, well, we can invite you to preseason and we can get you into the agriculture school. Now, I grew up in Michigan, but I did not grow up on a farm, but it was the best thing that I had going. So I said, sign me up. And it ended up being great. I did everything wrong in terms of picking a school for all you that are in the process right now um, <laughs> in that I knew nothing about Rutgers University and I knew nothing about the state of New Jersey. My dad drove me out. He opened up the door at exit nine off the turnpike there and kicked me out and said, good luck and figure, <laughs> and figure it out. But what, it, what he dumped me into was another world. Uh, you know, the size of the school, I went to a small little prep school in Michigan. Uh, this was a state school, 30,000 plus there. Uh, I was from out of state, which only was about 2% of the, of the uh, student body at that time. But as I said, the soccer part of it, it was division one. It was a team that was going to be playing against the best around the country. And I ended up playing against the best around the country and doing very, very well individually. The team, we went to a couple of final fours, obviously in a, a, a championship game, which we ended up losing. But to your point, I was playing against really, really good competition that ultimately, in many cases, ended up being my teammates and friends as we moved along and evolved into Olympic teams and national teams and professional teams going forward. Yeah, you check those rosters for Rutgers and UCLA. It is stars and more stars. Special holiday edition with the great soccer icon, Alexi Lalas. We'll step aside and be back with more Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, National Soccer Hall of Famer, Alexi Lalas. You can see him on Fox Sports covering men's soccer and women's soccer. When we took our first break, we were talking about him making it to a couple of Final Fours and a championship game at Rutgers. Right about that time, you knew Lothar Osiander was getting ready for the 92 Olympics. Man, that team was fun. I felt like I had a front row seat to you kind of coming out and being this superstar. You got even bigger in 94. We'll touch on that in a little bit. But what do you remember about that Olympic team, Lothar, qualifying, all of it, Alexi? 
So the 92 Olympic team uh, was in Barcelona, and uh, a lot of us were finishing up uh, or in the midst of our collegiate time. And it came to a point where we were going to be traveling all over the place and qualifying for the Olympics, and it wasn't going to work in terms of staying at school. So we ended up leaving school for the semester before uh, the actual Olympics. And this was an incubator, this team. If you look at the names that were on that team that then ultimately matriculated up into the uh, full national team. And I'm talking about Kobe Jones and I'm talking about Brad Friedel and Mike uh, and Mike Lapper and, and even players, you know, like Dante Washington and even, you know, a player like Steve Snow that ultimately didn't necessarily do it at the, at the, uh, at the, at the highest level of the national team. There was just a lot of talent on this, uh, on this team, Chris, uh, Chris Henderson. Uh, and if you look at those guys, they all went on to different professional careers, many of them very, very successful, many of them very well known. But there was also this group, Joe Max Moore, that that uh, that formed a core that then, as I said, graduated up to the World Cup team in 1994. We didn't know it at the time, but I think Lothar Osiander recognized that it was not only his job to get this team to play well and to win and to qualify for an Olympics, but to give these young players and at that point, that was what a young player was. I know it's, it's much younger now, but at that point, these young, inexperienced types of players, the, the experience and the knowledge and the maturity to be able to take it to that next step because 94 was still looming at that point. And we all saw it as players. I think he saw it as a coach and he certainly did because Bora Milutinovic, the coach of the 94 World Cup team, he had his eye out and he would show up at different times while we were uh, playing with this team because I think he knew that there was some real talent there that he was going to pick off uh, when that 92 Olympics in Barcelona was ultimately done. And we had a great time it, it, uh, you know, that, uh, that team developing and growing and, and learning and just traveling the world and having a good time uh, uh, with each other. It was, I remember it incredibly fondly in terms of uh, my time as a, uh, as a, I guess, a young, inexperienced type of player, just kind of coming of age. You mentioned Bora keeping his eye out. Alexi, I've asked you this before in different ways, but I always talk about the fact that I feel like I had a front row seat, particularly for you and Kobe kind of seizing the moment. I actually had a little bit of a front row seat even back in 89 with Tony Miola growing out the mullet and kind of knowing about endorsements and that type of thing. Did you know what was coming, Alexi, or were you just taking it day by day? Um, look, I, I, I cultivated an image and I think it came from, you know, my music background, uh, um, the understanding of I'm in the entertainment business. And I knew that early on. Um, I knew that, you know, you you practice, um, which is ultimately a rehearsal, right? You go on stage, which is ultimately a, a field. You wear a costume, uh, you wear a uniform uh, and you perform in front of you know, fans, you import an audience. And the things, you know, how you say things is as important as what you say, how you look, how you act. I, I leaned into that because that's, that's what I knew from the music side of it. And that's what, that's what I wanted. And that's what, and that's what I saw in terms of the opportunity. Now, um, sometimes when you say that people say, well, is it, is it, uh, are you just playing a character? And, and that's not true at all. You have to, there has to be some, uh, it has to be authentic. It has to be genuine. And, you know, the, but I understood the way that I looked, the way that I acted, the way that I talked was going to be analyzed and was going to be under a microscope and a spotlight that comes with the World Cup. So even though I had never played in a World Cup, I knew that at the end of this, this pathway, if I was lucky enough to be there, and that was a big if, but if I was lucky enough to be one of those fortunate few 
it was a great opportunity and it was a great platform from which to, sh I guess, show my wares and then parlay that into something else. Because look, keep in mind, you know, nowadays, you know, there's, there, there's a kid that, that uh, I don't know, is in the Dallas system, doesn't even play a game with FC Dallas and then gets seen by uh, a team over in Europe and has that direct pathway. And I love it. Believe me, I love the fact that you don't have to star in a World Cup to be given a greater opportunity. But at that point, I knew that that was my ticket. If I was going to, if I made that team first off, if I got on the field and if I did well, there were going to be other opportunities, both in terms of uh, playing career and in terms of the other things when it comes to endorsements and notoriety and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was calculated, but it was incredibly comfortable in terms of who I was and this, this character and this persona that I inhibited, uh, that I inhabited. When did you know that you had punched your ticket, particularly with Bora, who was rather cagey? You know, he made some last minute cuts. I think he cut your longtime roommate, Jeff Agus, on the last day. That had to be emotional for you. I feel like one of your tipping points was that incredible goal against England in the U.S. Cup one year out from the World Cup, right? It was against England, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, yeah, amazing goal. You came off the bench, right, and scored that goal, I think. Maybe it was before that, Alexi. When did you know that you'd made it? Oh man, I didn't, I didn't know at all. Uh, it, it, keep in mind, so a lot of people don't realize this. In order to get ready for the 94 World Cup, obviously we're the host nation, we didn't need to qualify. And Boris said, all right, well, what we're gonna do then, it was we're just gonna bring everybody into residence. We did it down in, uh, in, uh, in Orange County, down uh, in Los Angeles, right south of Los Angeles. And we just basically trained every day. And we, bas we, we basically functioned like a club team, but we played international games constantly. Having said that, you know, we were on week to week contracts. Then if we were lucky, you were on a month to month contract. And it was just a rotation. It was like, it was like survivor. All right. You either stayed and continued on or you were shipped off the island. And a lot of good players came in and out. And that next Monday after a week, you would look around and say, well, I'm still here. I, I, I you know, I still got uh, a couple of uh, meal tickets at the Holiday Inn down there and I get to eat and I still get to train. So I'm going to keep going on. But even all the way up to, you know, you mentioned the final cuts, which would have been in June of 1994. Uh, even then, I remember driving home just saying, please don't don't have a call or please don't get called into the office. And it was cutthroat. It was brutal, but it was but it was it was competition. And it was a competition within a competition. So the first order of business was to prove to Bora and to the staff that you were of value and that you were of value to be named to the team. Second order of business is you were of value to be actually be on the field. But I never took anything for granted or even recognized in the moment that that was going, uh, that, that was going to happen. And I still didn't. And, and I always was fearful that I was going to lose my spot. And I I ended up harnessing that and, and finding a way to use that as motivation because, you know, as soon as you get complacent, yeah, it can be problematic. So your best moment, I look behind me and the entire team signed the 94 team and you were kind enough to write to Dean, you kick ass 1994 U.S. World Cup team. And then right to the right of it, I see you draped in a flag after beating Columbia. When you look back at the World Cup, what moment comes to mind as the best moment during that time, Alexi? So look, we, you know, we were, 
we were hell bent on making sure that we left a good impression, not just to the rest of the world, but to our own country. And we wanted to make sure that we did well. And what's doing well? It was getting out of the group. That was the the initial and the big goal for the team. And so that game against Colombia, which is you know now a you know iconic type of of moment. It was everything because for all intents and purposes, after beating Colombia, a team that a lot of people had picked uh, to win the World Cup and certainly our biggest competition in our group stage uh, games, that was huge. And that was that was a moment that I'll never forget in the Rose Bowl, completely sold out. And, you know, it's it's the things you dream of as an athlete and you you grow up watching you know, people draped in the American flag. And I grew up watching the 80, uh, the 1980 Olympic team and, uh, you know, Arizioni and these types of, uh, you know, these types of players and, and that that moment that you crave and that you want representing your country. And we got to do that, you know, to put the flag around in that moment when everybody was celebrating a goal that had been accomplished and one that a lot of people didn't think was going to happen. And so, yeah, I'll never forget that day uh, against Colombia and that game against Colombia. And as I said, it's it's taken on even you know even more meeting because you know the aftermath of that and it's you know it's it's become this um, this legendary type of game, not just for the score, not just for the result, uh, but for for Escobar and what happened uh, later on. But you know, I will forever remember that moment and what it felt like to to grab that flag and to celebrate with everybody because we had achieved that goal for all intents and purposes, like I say, of going on and getting out of the group. Last question, this segment, and then the last segment, I want to move to you being a general manager and then your move to media where you seem right at home. One part about your career that I don't think people talk enough about is that 96 Olympic team because they had, you know, changed the rules where they could add three overage players. And I believe it was you, Claudio Reyna, and Brad Frito. Is that right? Were those the three? Was it Brad or Casey? I can't remember who was in goal. I'd have to I'd have to go back and look. But you're right. I mean, it was three, and it was right down the spine. And so, you know, '96 was in Atlanta. At that point, um, I had just come back to Major League Soccer. Major League Soccer started in 1996. I had been playing over in Europe, uh, in Europe, in Italy for a couple of years, and you know, the opportunity to go to an Olympics and to go to an Olympics at, at home, uh, you know, that was that, that was too good to pass up. And it was really really interesting. Bruce Arena was the coach. Uh, we didn't get a lot of time with the team because, the, like you said, the rules had changed where in 1992, when I was in Barcelona, it was all under 23 at the time of the Olympics. And then in 1996, they said, all right, you can have three overage players, but they, they come in at the last minute. So we weren't really part of the team until until last minute. Having said that, it was really cool because. You know, the Olympics, when it comes to soccer, it's so big, they have to satellite it out. And so we were in Birmingham, Alabama for games. We were up in D.C. Uh, for uh, for games. And it was really interesting. I'm, I'm glad I got that that moment to be coached by Bruce Arena, one of the all time legends, and to see what he was uh, he was all about. And obviously, to, once again, to represent my country in a big international event like that. We'll be back with more Alexi Lala's special holiday edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. 
ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. Final segment with the great Alexi Lalas. You can catch him on Fox Sports covering all things soccer for Fox. Alexi Lalas, thanks so much for being a part of our holiday edition. We went to break talking about the 96 Olympics. You obviously had a great MLS career. You won the Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup. You won the MLS Cup. You won the CONCACAF Champions Cup. That was all with Los Angeles, I believe. And then in 2002, you decided to retire. Look, I'm one of those guys that I wanted Dennis Rodman to play forever and Magic Johnson to play forever. I wanted Alexi Lalas to play forever. How did you know? When did you know? What made you know it was time to hang up the cleats? So in the end of, uh, what was it, 2003, like you said, I was playing for the Los Angeles Galaxy. And I, you know, I made that walk that every, every player makes into the uh, coach's room. And we sat down. And at the time, uh, the great Ziggy Schmidt, rest in peace, uh, was the coach of the Galaxy. And he said, listen, it's not going to work for next year. And I said, well, okay, is it, is it money? Is it, is it this? Is it that? Um, and he said, no, it's just not going to work. And that's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm a big boy. I, I get it. And, you know, I want to be, I want to have a coach that's honest with me. And he was incredibly honest with me. And so I walked out of that door, the door closed and I thought, well, what am I going to do now? I mean, I, and so I thought, all right, well, I'm going to go try to find another team and try to continue on here. Oftentimes one door closes, another one uh, opens up. And I was incredibly fortunate because I was within that Galaxy team uh, and the ownership group, which is the Anschutz Entertainment Group. And, you know, they were looking for some different things and, and looking for ways to help players transition from their career. And they were at the time owned the San Jose Earthquakes. And so I was I was given an opportunity to go up and learn the business of the San Jose of Major League Soccer and learn the business of soccer. And so I tell, you know, I tell younger players all the time because sometimes they'll ask me like I know what the hell I'm doing, but they'll ask me anyway. And uh, and I'll say, listen, if you see an opportunity uh, to uh, to move on, make sure you really look at it hard because it might not be there when you want it. And I was at least smart enough that moment to recognize that this was a, 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 an opportunity and a stepping off point that I couldn't pass up. I certainly could have continued to play for however many years, but that opportunity to go into the business side of it was, was being offered to me. And um, I recognized the value of that. And I, I, I don't regret it for a second. I learned so much about a sport I thought I knew everything about. I learned so much about the business. I came in contact with so many incredible men and women because I started with the San Jose Earthquakes. Then I went to the uh, Metro Stars slash Red Bulls in New York. Then I came back to the Los Angeles Galaxy, three very distinct and different types 
of business experiences. Uh, the earthquakes were a team that was in uh, in uh, in flux because they were getting ready to be moved. They ended up going to Houston, as we know, and then back to San Jose. Uh, then I went out to New York, which was a team that was in flux because they were getting sold to the Red Bulls. And then I came back to the Los Angeles Galaxy, which was a team that brought in David Beckham and that whole hurricane. And I learned so much. I made plenty of mistakes along the way. I was very, very young, but it gave me an incredible appreciation and respect for all of the people out there that don't kick a ball, but are as important to the uh, to the progress and to the success of the game in this country as any of us that uh, that do. And so, like I said, it was it was a really valuable experience to to better understand this business that I that I functioned in, but I didn't have a an, an understanding, and more importantly, I didn't have an appreciation for how it functioned. Upon reflection, what do you think Alexi Lalas was the best at as a general manager or in that executive office? And what was one thing that you were like, man, I could have done that better. Or I wish I could have done that better. So I, the irony is that the business part of it was actually uh, my my best piece. Uh, you know, we made we made a bunch of money. Uh, we improved the business. The actual uh, product on the field, because my job was to put the put a great product on the field and monetize it off the field. I got the monetization pro, uh, uh, part of the uh, equation right. I didn't put a great product on the field. And if I had to do anything differently, and, and it's not it's not that I could have at the moment seen it. You know, I think I, I was making it up as I went along, like 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 anybody would. I think I tried to be something that I'm not because you, you have this this idea and this stereotype and this image of how you should act in you know, an office and in a front office type of setting and in a business setting. And, it, and it, you know, it comes from stereotypes and things that you see. And look, I'm not saying you don't change. Absolutely, you change and you have to change because let's be honest, if you act like you you act as a player, then you're it's going to be problematic if you bring that to the, uh, you know, to the business world. However, I, I think too often, if you're making that transition, you think I can't be like this, but you know what? That's who you are. And you have to recognize what part of your personalities actually, actually do translate. And like I said, I think I tried too hard to be something that I'm not. And in doing so, I became something that I was uncomfortable with that ultimately impacted and affected the way I was doing the job. And like I said, I was young. And if I had continued on with that, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that I would would have at times reverted and kind of recognized the error of my ways uh, going forward. But but like I said, I was I, I, you surround yourself with good people and you recognize that you're going to make mistakes along the way. And I and I certainly did. But ultimately, the value for me was the appreciation that I got for the hard work the day in and day out slog that is professional sports, but more importantly, professional soccer, um, but also the commitment and the incredible pride that people have that have created this unique American soccer culture that we have. And every place was different, but, uh, but every place had that, that ownership and that love and that passion. And like I said, that pride for what they were creating, not just for now, but for the future. Some of your peers that stepped into where your world is now. And that's what we're going to jump to the TV world. And I'm thinking of people like Harks, Miola, Winalda also had this bug for being a coach. Mm -hmm. I don't get the feeling that you've ever had the bug for being a coach. Is that accurate? And why is that accurate? 
I, I don't have this burning desire to do that. And, you know, some of the guys you mentioned and others, they do. I, I run into so many people in my line of work uh, when it comes to the, uh, the media side that are just passing through and using it as a way station until something better comes along. And you can get away with that for a little bit. But ultimately, I think it will manifest itself in your performance. And I think you're cheating yourself. I think you're cheating the viewer. And I'm so fortunate and lucky and let's be honest, incredibly privileged to be able to do this. Um, and I don't want to do anything else. And I want to be surrounded by people that are equally invested. I want to be surrounded by junkies that want to get better. And I still make mistakes and I can get a, I can get a whole lot better. But I, I was very lucky that once the, uh, the business uh, experience that I had, I found something else that enables me to perform. And, you know, we go back to being that entertainer and, but also to talk about a game that I like uh, to help evolve and progress this game that I like in a really, really unique way. And, um, you know, they can, they can pry it from my cold, dead, redheaded hands because I love what I do. I'm really, as I said, really, really fortunate to be able to do it. And I want to continue to do it. And I want to continue to get better. And I want to be surrounded by people that are equally as jacked up and excited to be a part of it, as opposed to just using it as a way station until something better comes along. Let's dive into that because here you are performing again and here you are right in the middle of the sport that you love, the sport that has made you famous and wealthy and all the great things that come with it. Part of that performance, Alexi, is you've got to stir it up every once in a while. That means you've got to take some bullets. You've never been afraid to take some bullets. How did you build up that sort of firewall for yourself? Because you're not afraid to mix it up, my man. I mean, look, it, it comes with the territory when you're involved in the media, but, you know, I've been, you know, either to my face or behind my back or online or offline <laughs> or smoke signals or emails or blogs or, you know, over the years, everybody's had something to say, uh, positive, negative, a lot of negative. Um, and so you, you develop a pretty thick skin. And, and if you don't, then you're in trouble, to be quite honest. You probably shouldn't be in this line, in this line of work. And, you know, when it comes to our game, you know, since we don't have the the normal and traditional types of platforms out there when it comes to media, where all of this kind of stuff happens, it's jarring to some to some people. But I love the debate. I grew up in a house where I was encouraged to debate. I was encouraged to defend my side of different stories. Um, and I was also encouraged to not not apologize for having a differing opinion about something. I believe that I do it in a respectful and civil way, but I also recognize that, you know, once again, I'm in the entertainment industry and the way that I say something is as important as what I say. And I want you, I want to evoke something. I want to have you react. All right. You can agree, you can disagree, but what I don't want you to do is just change the channel. And there's plenty of people that disagree with things uh, that I say, and that's, that, that's, that's fine. That's part, that's part of my job. I, the, the question I get most right now is, do you believe everything you say? And I want to make it very, very clear. Absolutely. Okay. I've never go, go on and say something that I don't believe in. Now, I can look at two sides of a, of a situation and a debate, and I can equally argue both of, the, both of those sides. But I'm never going to say something just to say something because it's a, the opposite side. I think no matter what you do at its core, it has to be genuine. It has to be authentic. Um, and it has to be and it has to be honest. And just because you are performing, just because you are entertaining, just because you're even playing a, a character at different times doesn't mean that it can't be honest. It doesn't mean it can't be true. And like I said, authentic and come from a real place. And that that is the trick as far as I'm concerned. Like I said, I, I don't know if I've mastered it yet, but I'm trying to get there. And I think 
I, I want more of that. I enjoy when people challenge me. I enjoy when I'm debating with people. And sometimes it's, you know, in a bar or in an airport or something or, or something like that. But we don't have enough of that when it comes to our sport and we don't have enough people willing to do it. But I don't I don't think we have enough platforms from which we can do it either. Special holiday edition with Alexi Lalas. We'll just got three questions left. He's got to get ready as we're recording this to prep for a USA men's national team friendly. So we're going to start with them. The U.S. men's national team. It is amazing how deep the pool is now. It's also amazing how young the pool is now. Not that the pool wasn't young like when you played, as you mentioned, particularly in 90, it was all college players, 94, a little bit more season. But now you got these young superstars that are making millions of dollars. What is your take on where we are right now with Coach Burhalter and the U.S. men's national team? Well, look, I mean, I'm hard pressed to find a time in history when we have been more bullish, and I think rightfully so, um, and optimistic about the men's national team. And the, the interesting thing is this only comes a few years after what is, it's not arguably, for me, it is the worst uh, and biggest failure in U.S. soccer history, which is in 2017, not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. And yet we find ourselves here in 2021, at the end of 2021, after an incredibly successful 2021, going into 2022 with, like you said, just a wealth of talent. And it's not just the level of talent and where they're playing and, and the leagues that they're playing, but the depth of talent and therefore the competition for spots. And, you know, I'm, I'm, we're recording this on uh, on Saturday, December, uh, what is it, 18th. And I'm about to do a game where the U.S. is playing Bosnia-Herzegovina, right? And it's just, it's just a friendly and it's a, it, you know, it's not the starting team for Greg Berhalter. And yet there are players there that are going to feature. And we're so excited and we uh, I think rightfully so about all of this talent and all of the possibilities. I mean, you know, listen, when Greg Berhalter first off names the roster for a camp, there is incredible debate and consternation out there. Why didn't this player get and this player, this, but that's amazing. That's, and that's a good thing, let alone when he names the 11. So I can't wait to see what the 11 is come November and December in Qatar for the world cup next year. Knock on wood, we make it because I think, I think this is, this is what great soccer playing nations are about where there's all this debate as to who is that best ultimate 11. And once again, a national team isn't necessarily the best players. It's the best collection of players. And so Greg Berhalter has what Tata Martino would call champagne problems because he's got all of this talent. He's had a, an incredible 2021. Let's hope that he parlays it into an even better 2022 that has Qatar uh, in November and December in it. One of the things I love about your coverage, Alexi, is you're always right there for coverage of the women, including from afar commenting on the NWSL. You think about Blatko and Domnoski only getting a bronze medal. It's kind of weird. I'm not saying they're flipping because the women are always going to be in the battle for one, two, or three, but they do need to kind of do a shift change, I think. Talk about the state of the women's game and then also the state of NWSL. I mean, look, this is a, a transition type of moment for Vlatko, and I, th I think he would admit it as much. And I think that's part of the reason why he was hired to kind of move this team along, which is difficult. I mean, you got some incredible players that certainly could to continue playing, but we all know that it's a young person's game when it comes to the international game. Uh, he'll really be judged when it comes uh, to the World Cup. And I'll tell you what, my participation now with multiple World Cups, I, I, I have so much fun 
when I'm talking about the uh, the women's national team and the and the women's game, and it continues to grow and to evolve. I'm here in uh, in Los Angeles. You know, we just had Angel City that announced they have what 13,000 season tickets for uh, for next year. So the expansion, whether it's up here in Los Angeles or down south, our friends down in San Diego uh, coming in. The league continues to grow. But what I think you're seeing is that, and for me, it doesn't really matter. Men's, women's, co-ed, I'll talk about it and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll celebrate it. But when it comes to the women's game, I think what we're seeing is that from a business perspective, it is starting to make sense because it can't be just about charity. It can't just be about benevolence. You have to see that this is something you want to get involved with and you want to invest in from a business perspective when it comes to the ownership and the leadership over there. And then you got to make sure that you are giving an entertaining Um, and competitive type of product to the people that want to see soccer. And we are seeing it time and time again, that if you do it correctly, you have smart people uh, in the leadership roles, you can do it. And it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And a lot of that engine is driven from the U.S. women's national team, which is arguably the best uh, in the world, depending on where where we are. Doesn't mean they win every single game, although they win most of them. And it doesn't mean they win every single tournament, although they certainly are uh, two-time World Cup champs uh, in a row. It'll be interesting to see Australia and New Zealand, what this team does under Vlaco, because I think there's going to be a lot of different names and there's going to be this changing of the guard and what a guard it is. I mean, we just said goodbye to, uh, to Carly Lloyd, but then you're talking about Megan Rapino and Becky Sobrin and Alyssa Nair and all of these different, uh, you know, Tobin Heath, these different mainstays of this team that want to be there. But what they have done is they've fostered a generation and a new generation that's come up and said, Hey, it's our time. Listen, at one point, I took the position away from a guy that played in the World Cup. And that is, you know, the circle of life. That's what happens. That's what happens. We will move on. But ultimately, you know, we expect, and I think rightfully so, that this team is the best in the world, that this team wins every single game. And certainly when it comes to World Cups and Olympics, that this team is ultimately, when all is said and done, sitting on the uh, the top of the podium and winning uh, and World Cups and, and winning gold uh, gold medals. Because... That's what we are conditioned, and it's just because of their their history and their tradition of incredible success. Even when you don't know what's coming, you're the king to the segue and to the close because I feel like on the girls' side particularly, the ECNL has made all of these colleges so great where it's not just North Carolina every year. There's so many great colleges where most of their players are coming from the ECNL. They're starting to get going on the boys' side, so that has certainly helped. For all these youngsters that play in the ECNL, I want to close with your message to them about living the dream because you've lived the dream, Alexi Lalas. I mean, look, it's it's easy for me to say, do this, do this and do this, uh, you know, and but I'll be honest with you, being successful and being professional and playing in World Cups. Yeah, it's great. But there's also while it's an incredible amount of hard work, there's also there's also luck. And so things can happen. But what you get out of soccer isn't always the wins and the losses, isn't always the, you know, fame or money or, uh, you know, holding up trophies for me. Still to this day, my best friends are people that I are, are guys that I met when I was nine, 10 years old because of soccer. You know, we showed up on a day when the team was getting together. Hi, my name's Alexi, you know, and to this day, and they've gone on to be doctors and, and work in business and lawyers and do all this kind of stuff. But they're still my friends because of that connection of this beautiful game and what this beautiful game did. And that, my friends, okay, is is the ultimate gift, all right? Regardless of what success you have or whatever level you achieve, soccer can give you a gift. And I hope that you take it because 
there's so many more opportunities now than there have been in the past to get good coaching, to have good facilities, to be able to, to watch soccer. But ultimately, when it comes right down to it, you know, it's about, it's about the interaction. It's about, it's about being on a team. It's about creating friendships. It's about, it's about competition. It's about learning lessons uh, that we all, that sports can teach and certainly soccer can teach. So don't underestimate the value of just participating uh, right now. I'm not telling you not to be, you know, to, to work hard and don't be competitive and don't care about winning and losing, but I'm just telling you that when all is said and done, you may or may not have achieved your quote unquote competitive goals, but I guarantee you, you will pull something positive out. If you don't know in the moment, eventually it will, it will show itself and you will, you will come if you haven't yet to appreciate how important sports are. And in our case, how important soccer is going forward. Speaking of gifts, it's been a special gift to have you on the holiday edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, the American soccer icon known as Alexi Lawless. Happy holidays, Alexi. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Alexi, and thank you for all you've done to push the game forward. On behalf of the ECNL, Christian Labors, Jason Cutney, Jen Winnegal, Doug Bracken, Andrea Wheeler, Jacob Bourne, the entire crew, I'm Dean Linky, wishing each and every one of you a happy holidays and a happy new year. We'll see you just after the new year for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, this is Dean Linky saying happy holidays on behalf of the ECNL. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.